Chapter 43, Part 2 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 43 The Last Victory and Death of Belisarius, Death of Justinian, Part 2. The foresight of Totila had raised obstacles worthy of such an antagonist. Ninety furlongs below the city, in the narrowest part of the river, he joined the two banks by strong and solid timbers in the form of a bridge, on which he erected two lofty towers, manned by the bravest of his Scots, and profusely stored with missile weapons and engines of offence. The approach of the bridge and towers was covered by a strong and massy chain of iron, and the chain, at either end, on the opposite sides of the Tiber, was defended by a numerous and chosen detachment of archers. But the enterprise of forcing these barriers, and relieving the capital, displays a shining example of the boldness and conduct of Belisarius. His cavalry advanced from the port along the public road, to all the motions and distract the attention of the enemy. His infantry and provisions were distributed in two hundred large boats, and each boat was shielded by a high rampart of thick planks, pierced with many small holes for the discharge of missile weapons. In the front, two large vessels were linked together to sustain a floating castle, which commanded the towers of the bridge, and contained a magazine of fire, sulphur, and bitumen. The whole fleet, which the general led in person, was laboriously moved against the current of the river. The chain yielded to their weight, and the enemies who guarded the banks were either slain or scattered. As soon as they touched the principal barrier, the fire-ship was instantly grappled to the bridge. One of the towers, with two hundred goths, was consumed by the flames. The assailants shouted victory, and Rome was saved. If the wisdom of Belisarius had not been defeated by the misconduct of his officers. He had previously sent orders to Bessas to second his operations by a timely sally from the town, and he had fixed his lieutenant Isaac by a peremptory command to the station of the port. But avarice rendered Bessas immovable, while the youthful ardor of Isaac delivered him into the hands of a superior enemy. The exaggerated rumor of his defeat was hastily carried to the ears of Belisarius. He paused, betrayed in that single moment of his life some emotions of surprise and perplexity, and reluctantly sounded a retreat to save his wife Antonina, his treasures, and the only harbour which he possessed on the Tuscan coast. The vexation of his mind produced an ardent and almost mortal fever, and Rome was left without protection to the mercy or indignation of Totila. The continuance of hostilities had embittered the national hatred. The Arian clergy was ignominiously driven from Rome. Pelagius, the archdeacon, returned without success from an embassy to the Gothic camp, and the Sicilian bishop, the envoy or nuncio of the Pope was deprived of both his hands for daring to utter falsehood in the service of the church and state. Famine had relaxed the strength and discipline of the garrison of Rome. They could derive no effectual service from a dying people. An inhuman avarice of the merchant at length absorbed the vigilance of the governor. Four Isaurian sentinels, while their companions slept, and their officers were absent, descended by a rope from the wall, and secretly proposed to the Gothic king to introduce his troops into the city. The offer was entertained with coldness and suspicion. They returned in safety, 
They twice repeated their visit. The place was twice examined. The conspiracy was known and disregarded. And no sooner had Totila consented to the attempt than they unbared the Asinarian gate and gave it mittens to the Goths. Till the dawn of day they halted in order of battle, apprehensive of treachery or ambush. But the troops of Bessus, with their leader, had already escaped. And when the king was pressed to disturb their retreat, he prudently replied that no sight could be more grateful than that of a flying enemy. The patricians, who were still possessed of horses, Decius, Basilius, etc., accompanied the governor, their brethren, among whom Olybrius, Orestes, and Maximus are named by the historian, took refuge in the church of St. Peter. But the assertion, that only five hundred persons remained in the capital, inspires some doubt of the fidelity either of his narrative or of his text. As soon as daylight had displayed the entire victory of the Goths, their monarch devoutly visited the tomb of the Prince of the Apostles, but while he prayed at the altar, twenty-five soldiers and sixty citizens were put to the sword in the vestibule of the temple. The archdeacon Pelagius stood before him, with the Gospels in his hand. O Lord, be merciful to your servant. Pelagius, said Totila with an insulting smile, your pride now condescends to become a suppliant. I am a suppliant, replied the prudent archdeacon. God has now made us your subjects, and as your subjects, we are entitled to your clemency. At this humble prayer, the lives of the Romans were spared, and the chastity of the maids and matrons were preserved inviolate from the passions of the hungry soldiers. But they were rewarded by the freedom of pillage, after the most precious spoils had been reserved for the royal treasury. The houses of the senators were plentifully stored with gold and silver, and the avarice of Bessus had laboured with so much guilt and shame for the benefit of the conqueror. In this revolution, the sons and daughters of Roman consuls lasted the misery which they had spurned or relieved, wandered in tattered garments through the streets of the city and begged their bread, perhaps without success, before the gates of the hereditary mansions. The riches of Rusticiana, the daughters of Simacus and the widow of Boetius, had been generously devoted to alleviate the calamities of famine. But the barbarians were exasperated by the report that she had prompted the people to overthrow the statues of the great Theodoric, and the life of that venerable matron would have been sacrificed to his memory if Totila had not respected her birth, her virtues, and even the pious motive of her revenge. The next day he pronounced two orations to congratulate and admonish his victorious Scots and to reproach the senate as the vilest of slaves with their perjury folly and ingratitude sternly declaring that their estates and honours were justly forfeited to the companions of his arms yet he consented to forgive their revolt and the senators repaid his clemency by dispatching circular letters to their tenants and vassals in the provinces of italy strictly to enjoin them to desert the standard of the greeks to cultivate their lands in peace, and to learn from their masters the duty of obedience to a Gothic sovereign. Against the city, which had so long delayed the course of its victories, he appeared inexorable. One third of the walls in different parts were demolished by his command. Fire and engines prepared to consume or subvert the most stately works of antiquity. And the world was astonished by the fatal decree that Rome should be changed into a pasture for cattle. 
the firm and temperate remonstrance of Belisarius suspended the execution, he warned the barbarian not to sully his fame by the destruction of those monuments which were the glory of the dead, and the delight of the living, and Totila was persuaded, by the advice of an enemy, to preserve Rome as the ornament of his kingdom, or the fairest pledge of peace and reconciliation. When he had signified to the ambassadors of Belisarius his intention of sparing the city, he stationed an army at the distance of one hundred and twenty furlongs to observe the motions of the Roman general. With the remainder of his forces, he marched into Lucania and Apulia, and occupied on the summit of Mount Gerganus one of the camps of Hannibal. The senators were dragged in his train, and afterwards confined in the fortresses of Campania. The citizens, with their wives and children, were dispersed in exile. And during forty days, Rome was abandoned to desolate and dreary solitude. The loss of Rome was speedily retrieved by an action, to which, according to the event, the public opinion would apply the names of rashness or heroism. After the departure of Totila, the Roman general sallied from the port at the head of a thousand horse, cut in pieces the enemy who opposed his progress, and visited with pity and reverence the vacant space of the eternal city. Resolved to maintain a station so conspicuous in the eyes of mankind, he summoned the greatest part of his troops to the standard which he erected in the capital, the old inhabitants were recalled by the love of their country and the hopes of food, and the keys of Rome were sent a second time to the Emperor Justinian. The walls, as far as they had been demolished by the Goths, were repaired with rude and dissimilar materials. The ditch was restored, iron spikes were profusely scattered in the highways to annoy the feet of the horses, and as new gates could not suddenly be procured, the entrance was guarded by a Spartan rampart of his bravest soldiers. At the expiration of twenty-five days, Totila returned by hasty marches from Apulia to avenge the injury and disgrace. Belisarius expected his approach. The Goths were thrice repulsed in three general assaults. They lost the flower of their troops. The royal standard had almost fallen into the hands of the enemy. And the fame of Totila sunk, as it had risen with the fortune of his arms. Whatever skill and courage could achieve had been performed by the Roman general, it remained only that Justinian should terminate, by a strong and seasonable effort, the war which he had ambitiously undertaken. The indolence, perhaps the importance of a prince who despised his enemies and envied his servants, protracted the calamities of Italy. After a long silence, Belisarius was commanded to leave a sufficient garrison at Rome, and to transport himself into the province of Lucania, whose inhabitants, inflamed by a Catholic zeal, had cast away the yoke of the Aryan conquerors. In this ignoble warfare, the hero, invincible against the power of the barbarians, was basely vanquished by the delay, the disobedience, and the cowardice of his own officers. He reposed in his winter quarters at Crotona, in the full assurance that the two passes of the Lucanian hills were guarded by his cavalry. They were betrayed by treachery or weakness, and the rapid march of the Goths scarcely allowed time for the escape of Belisarius to the coast of Sicily. At length a fleet and army were assembled for the relief of Ruscanium or Rossano, a fortress sixty furlongs from the ruins of Sibarius, where the nobles of Lucania had taken refuge. In the first attempt, the Roman forces were dissipated by a storm. In the second, they approached the shore, but they saw the hills covered with archers, the landing place defended by a line of spears, 
and the king of the Goths impatient for battle. The conqueror of Italy retired with a sigh, and continued to languish, inglorious and inactive, till Antonina, who had been sent to Constantinople to solicit succours, obtained, after the death of the empress, the permission of his return. The last five campaigns of Belisarius might abate the envy of his competitors, whose eyes had been dazzled and wounded by the blaze of his former glory. Instead of delivering Italy from the Goths, he had wandered like a fugitive along the coast, without daring to march into the country, or to accept the bold and repeated challenge of Totila. Yet in the judgment of the few who could discriminate counsels from events, and compare the instruments with the execution, he appeared a more consummate master of the art of war than in the season of his prosperity, when he presented two captive kings before the throne of Justinian. The valor of Belisarius was not chilled by age, his prudence was matured by experience, but the moral virtues of humanity and justice seem to have yielded to the hard necessity of the times. The parsimony or poverty of the emperor compelled him to deviate from the rule of conduct which had deserved the love and confidence of the Italians. The war was maintained by the oppression of Ravenna, Sicily, and the faithful subjects of the empire, and the rigorous persecution of Herodian provoked that injured or guilty officer to deliver Spoleto into the hands of the enemy. The avarice of Antonina, which had been sometimes diverted by love, now reigned without a rival in her breast. Belisarius himself had always understood that riches, in a corrupt age, are the support and ornament of personal merit, and it can't be presumed that he should stain his honour for the public service without applying a part of the spoil to his private emolument. The hero had escaped the sword of the barbarians, but the dagger of conspiracy awaited his return. In the midst of wealth and honours, Artaban, who had chastised the African tyrant, complained of the ingratitude of courts. He aspired to Prejecta, the emperor's niece, who wished to reward her deliverer. But the impediment of his previous marriage was asserted by the piety of Theodora. The pride of royal descent was irritated by flattery, and the service in which he gloried had proved him capable of bold and sanguinary deeds. The death of Justinian was resolved, but the conspirators delayed the execution till they could surprise Belisarius disarmed and naked in the palace of Constantinople. Not a hope could be entertained of shaking his long-tried fidelity, and they justly dreaded the revenge, or rather the justice, of the veteran general, who might speedily assemble an army in Thrace to punish the assassins, and to perhaps to enjoy the fruits of their crime. Delay afforded time for rash communications and honest confessions. Artaban and his accomplices were condemned by the Senate, but the extreme clemency of Justinian detained them in the gentle confinement of the palace, till he pardoned their flagitious attempt against his throne and life. If the emperor forgave his enemies, he must cordially embrace a friend whose victories were alone remembered, and who was endeared to his prince by the recent circumstances of their common danger. Belisarius reposed from his toils, in the high station of general of the east, and count of the domestics, and the older consuls and patricians respectfully yielded the precedency of rank to the peerless merit of the first of the Romans. The first of the Romans still submitted to be the slave of his wife, but the servitude of habit and affection became less disgraceful when the death of Theodora had removed the baser influence of fear. 
Ioannina, their daughter, and the sole heiress of their fortunes, was betrothed to Anastasius, the grandson, or rather the nephew, of the empress, whose kind interposition forwarded the consummation of their youthful loves. But the power of Theodora expired, the parents of Ioannina returned, and her honour, perhaps her happiness, were sacrificed to the revenge of an unfeeling mother, who dissolved the imperfect nuptials before they had been ratified by the ceremonies of the church. Before the departure of Belisarius, Perusia was besieged, and few cities were impregnable to the Gothic arms. Ravenna, Ancona, and Crotona still resisted the barbarians, and when Totila asked in marriage one of the daughters of France, he was stung by the just reproach that the king of Italy was unworthy of his title till it was acknowledged by the Roman people. Three thousand of the bravest soldiers had been left to defend the capital. On the suspicion of a monopoly, they massacred the governor and announced to Justinian, by a deputation of the clergy, that unless their offence was pardoned, and their arrears were satisfied, they should instantly accept the tempting offers of Totila. But the officer who succeeded to the command, his name was Diogenes, deserved their esteem and confidence, and the Goths, instead of finding an easy conquest, encountered a vigorous resistance from the soldiers and people, who patiently endured the loss of the port and all maritime supplies. The siege of Rome would perhaps have been raised if the liberality of Totila to the Isaurians had not encountered some of the venal countrymen to copy the example of treason. In a dark night, while the Gothic trumpet sounded on another side, they silently opened the gate of St. Paul. The barbarians rushed into the city, and the flying garrison was intercepted before they could reach the harbour of Centum Sellae. A soldier trained in the school of Belisarius, Paul of Cilicia, retired with four hundred men to the mole of Hadrian. They repelled the Goths, but they felt the approach of famine, and their aversion to the taste of horse-flesh confirmed their resolution to risk the event of a desperate and decisive sally. But their spirit insensibly stooped to the offers of capitulation. They retrieved their arrears of pay, and preserved their arms and horses by enlisting in the service of Totila. Their chiefs, who pleaded a laudable attachment to their wives and children in the east, were dismissed with honour, and above four hundred enemies, who had taken refuge in the sanctuaries, were saved by the clemency of the victor. He no longer entertained the wish of destroying the edifices of Rome, which he now respected as the seat of the Gothic kingdom. The senate and people were restored to their country, the means of subsistence were liberally provided, and Totila, in the robe of peace, exhibited the equestrian games of the circus. While he amused the eyes of the multitude, four hundred vessels were prepared for the embarkation of his troops. The cities of Regium and Tarentum were reduced. He passed into Sicily, the object of his implacable resentment, and the island was stripped of its golden silver, of the fruits of the earth, and of an infinite number of horses, sheep, and oxen. Sardinia and Corsica obeyed the fortune of Italy, and the sea-coast of Greece was visited by a fleet of three hundred galleys. The Goths were landed in Corcyra and the ancient continent of Epirus. They advanced as far as Nicopolis, the trophy of Augustus, and Dodona, once famous by the oracle of Jove. In every step of his victories, the wise barbarian repeated to Justinian the desire of peace, applauded the concord of their predecessors, and offered to employ the Gothic arms in the service of the empire. 
Justinian was deaf to the voice of peace. But he neglected the prosecution of war, and the indolence of his temper disappointed, in some degree, the obstinacy of his passions. From the salutary slumber the emperor was awakened by the Pope Vigilius and the patrician Cetegus, who appeared before his throne and adjured him in the name of God and the people to resume the conquest and deliverance of Italy. In the choice of the generals, caprice, as well as judgment, was shown. A fleet and army sailed for the relief of Sicily, under the conduct of Liberius, but his youth and want of experience were afterwards discovered, and before he touched the shores of the island, he was overtaken by his successor. In the place of Liberius, the conspirator Artaban was raised from a prison to military honours, in the pious presumption that gratitude would animate his valour and fortify his allegiance. Belisarius reposed in the shade of his laurels, but the command of the principal army was reserved for Germanus, the emperor's nephew, whose rank and merit had been long repressed by the jealousy of the court. Theodora had injured him in the right of a private citizen, the marriage of his children, and the testament of his brother, and although his conduct was pure and blameless, Justinian was displeased that he should be thought worthy of the confidence of the malcontents. The life of Germanus was a lesson of implicit obedience. He nobly refused to prostitute his name and character in the factions of the circus. The gravity of his manners was tempered by innocent cheerfulness, and his riches were lent without interest to indigent or deserving friends. His valour had formerly triumphed over the Sclavonians of the Danube and the rebels of Africa. The first report of his promotion revived the hopes of the Italians, and he was privately assured that the crowd of Roman deserters would abandon, on his approach, the standard of Totila. His second marriage with Malasunta, the granddaughter of Theodoric, endeared Germanus to the gods themselves, and they marched with reluctance against the father of a royal infant, the last offspring of the line of Amali. A splendid allowance was assigned by the emperor, the general contributed his private fortune, his two sons were popular and active, and he surpassed, in the promptitude and success of his levies, the expectation of mankind. He was permitted to select some squadrons of Thracian cavalry, the veterans, as well as the youth of Constantinople and Europe, engaged their voluntary service, and as far as the heart of Germany, his fame and liberality attracted the aid of the barbarians. The Romans advanced to Sardica, an army of Sclavonians fled before their march, but within two days of their final departure, the designs of Germanus were terminated by his malady and death. Yet the impulse which he had given to the Italian war still continued to act with energy and effect. The maritime towns Ancona, Crotona, Kentum Kellae resisted the assaults of Totila. Sicily was reduced by the seal of Artaban, and the Gothic navy was defeated near the coast of the Adriatic. The two fleets were almost equal, 47 to 50 galleys. The victory was decided by knowledge and dexterity of the Greeks, but the ships were so closely grappled that only 12 of the Goths escaped from this unfortunate conflict. They affected to deprecate an element in which they were unskilled, but their own experience confirmed the truth of a maxim that the master of the sea will always acquire the dominion of the land. After the loss of Germanus, the nations were provoked to smile by the strange intelligence that the command of the Roman armies was given to a eunuch. But the eunuch Narses is ranked among the few who have rescued that unhappy name 
from the contempt and hatred of mankind. A feeble, diminutive body concealed the soul of a statesman and a warrior. His youth had been employed in the management of the loom and distaff, in the cares of the household, and in the service of female luxury. But while his hands were busy, he secretly exercised the faculties of a vigorous and discerning mind. A stranger to the schools and the camp, he studied in the palace to dissemble, to flatter, and to persuade, and as soon as he approached the person of the emperor, Justinian listened with surprise and pleasure to the manly counsels of his chamberlain and private treasurer. The talents of Narses were tried and improved in frequent embassies. He led an army into Italy, acquired a practical knowledge of the war and the country, and presumed to strive with the genius of Belisarius. Twelve years after his return, the eunuch was chosen to achieve the conquest which had been left imperfect by the first of the Roman generals. Instead of being dazzled by vanity or emulation, he seriously declared that, unless he were armed with an adequate force, he would never consent to risk his own glory and that of his sovereign. Justinian granted to the favorite what he might have denied to the hero. The Gothic war was rekindled from its ashes, and the preparations were not unworthy of the ancient majesty of the empire. The key of the public treasure was put into his hand, to collect magazines, to levy soldiers, to purchase arms and horses, to discharge the arrears of pay, and to tempt the fidelity of the fugitives and deserters. The troops of the Germanus were still in arms. They halted at Salona in the expectation of a new leader, and the legions of subjects and allies were created by the well-known liberality of the eunuch Narses. The king of the Lombards satisfied or surpassed the obligations of a treaty by lending two thousand two hundred of his bravest warriors, who were followed by three thousand of the martial attendants. Three thousand Heruli fought on horseback under Philemut, their native chief, and the noble Aratus, who adopted the manners and discipline of Rome, conducted a band of veterans of the same nation. Dagistheus was released from prison to command the Huns, and Kubad, the grandson and nephew of the great king, was conspicuous by the regal tiara at the head of his faithful Persians, who had devoted themselves to the fortunes of their prince. Absolute in the exercise of his authority, more absolute in the affection of his troops, Narses led a numerous and gallant army from Philippopolis to Salona, from whence he coasted the eastern side of the Adriatic as far as the confines of Italy. His progress was checked. The east could not supply vessels capable of transporting such multitudes of men and horses. The Franks, who in the general confusion had usurped the greater part of the Venetian province, refused a free passage to the friends of the Lombards. The station of Verona was occupied by Theias, with the flower of the Gothic forces. And that skilful commander had overspread the adjacent country, the fall of woods, and the inundation of waters. In this perplexity, an officer of expedience proposed to measure, secure by the appearance of rashness, that the Roman army should cautiously advance along the seashore, while the fleet preceded their march, and successively cast a bridge of boats over the mouths of the rivers, the Timabus, the Brenta, the Adige, and the Po, that fall into the Adriatic to the north of Ravenna. Nine days he reposed in the city, collected the fragments of the Italian army, and marching towards Rimini, to meet the defiance of an insulting enemy. End of chapter 43, part 2 Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland